broad topic, and that is the relationship between thought and meditation. And I'm going to focus this mostly uh, in terms of practice, particular practice points. And so it'll be both broad and somewhat technical and specific in certain points, but. Let me just ask to start, uh, is there anybody here who's noticed thinking? Like maybe just a little tiny bit once in a while. So of course, you know, we have this idea sometimes that we're going to go on retreat, we're gonna go to this secluded and silent place and we're going to be able to get away from our thoughts, especially, especially our painful or repetitive thoughts. And we're just going to be able to sink down into mindfulness and concentration and stay there and all those annoying kinds of things that we deal with in the outside world are going to fade away. And But interestingly enough, when we come here, we often find that they come with us and they come very often in the form of thoughts, thinking. And it's really not surprising that that's the case. There have been many uh, psychological studies that have been done that have asked people who have been subjects of the studies to kind of track what their mind is doing, what it's attending to in the course of a period of time, whether it's a day or a week or um, some specific period of time. And when people actually are asked to track what their mind is doing, they very often will find that for a good part of their waking moments that their mind is actually ruminating. It's actually thinking, it's caught up in thinking. And I I think the latest figure I saw was something like 70% of the time is spent thinking and ruminating in some sort of way. But I actually think that that's too low. (laughs) Because I think that when you ask people to track what their mind is doing, you're actually summoning forth two things in them. One is the need to actually pay attention to what they're experiencing, which might be something a little bit like mindfulness. And then uh, the other thing that's often brought forward, I think, is a certain embarrassment to acknowledge how much (laughs) the time they actually spend thinking and... uh, the time that is spent lost in that particular world. So this is very interesting that this is such a dominant, such a predominant way that the mind tends to function. This world of thought. And when you start actually paying attention to what the mind is doing when it's thinking, it's it can be kind of shocking, can't it? Um, It's not necessarily particularly linear. It's not necessarily particularly coherent. It doesn't 
tell a consistent story or give a consistent interpretation of things. It can kind of swing back and forth from one vantage point or one self-view to another with a great deal of ease. Um, It can be cruel, it can be encouraging, it can be hopeful, it can be exhilarated, it can be depressed, it can be interested, it can be disorganized, it can be clear, it can be completely cloudy. Often in quick oscillation. So this is interesting, the seeing of the mind, especially the mind that hasn't been trained and what it actually gets up to when it's left in this unsupervised state, this state where there isn't mindfulness established. So tonight I want to focus on exploring the the understanding that people may have of the relationship between thought and the two major practices that we teach here. Uh, Mindfulness, also known as insight practice or vipassana, and the practice of the Brahma-viharas, the practice of uh, goodwill and compassion and empathetic joy and equanimity. And I'll spend most of the time focused on vipassana, because I think in a certain kind of way we can deal with the relationship between thought and the Brahma-viharas in a pretty compressed fashion. So we actually use thought in the Brahma-vihara practices. It's the way we do the practice. It's not the only element of the practice. We also include the felt sense or the, the seeing of the being that we're offering metta or compassion or any of these others towards. But basically we use our intention to cultivate this quality and to offer this particular quality of the heart and mind. That intention is carried with the words that we use, the words that we recite, the actual phrases that we use. May you be happy. We're choosing to think a particular kind of wholesome thought that reflects the intention and which may actually result in the opening of that particular state of goodwill within us. So we're actually using wise thought or skillful thought, wholesome thought in a particular intentional way over and over again. And in the process of doing that, we are planting the seeds for that state to arise, not just now, but also in the future within our mind stream, with more frequency, with greater strength. So the fact that it's possible for us as human beings to do this, to actually intentionally cultivate a certain relationship with ourself and and others, which is skillful, and we can use thought to do that, to carry that intention, shows the power of thought in shaping the mind, shaping the direction of the mind. 
when you combine the understanding of the power of thought in shaping the direction of the mind with what I talked about earlier the frequency with which we are thinking in some kind of way in a way that's generally largely unconscious and our understanding of the amount of suffering the amount of unskillful behavior that comes out of unconscious unskillful thought you can see that learning to develop some kind of mindfulness in relationship to thought, some skill in working with thought is really essential. Because if we don't have mindfulness in relationship to our thoughts, basically they just cycle around expressing whatever our existing conditioning is very often our more suffering kind of conditioning just repeatedly replicates itself like some kind of computer virus. So this is a very interesting area, this whole area of insight practice and working with thought. So We're going to start at the very beginning, we might say, well, what's thought? What are you talking about when you're saying thought? So I came up with a definition, and it's a working definition, but I I think it'll suffice. So I, I basically said it's the symbolic representation of experience using words, uh, pictures, images, sounds, body, sensations, or gestures. So most often we experience thinking as involving words, which interestingly enough are themselves sounds which represent particular things. How wild is it that we can, we kind of have an agreed upon set of pitches and tones and and uh, you know, vowels and consonants and strung together in a particular sequence that we can utter and have some understanding appear within our own mind and within the mind of another that hears and attends that. That's pretty remarkable, isn't it? You know, I'm sure some of the higher, higher mammals have some capacity for language But within humans, it's very, very highly developed and, of course, is represented in writing as as well. So you have the possibility for this intergenerational transmission of understanding and uh, knowledge. So we, of course, have been the recipients and the beneficiaries of this intergenerational transmission of understanding and knowledge going back to the time of the Buddha, and beyond, represented in these uh, suttas and other teachings which have been handed down to us. So thought, thought which is recorded, can have very, very far-reaching effects. These little symbolic sounds that represent ideas and experience and understanding 
So of course thought can be strictly an internal experience that we're only we are aware of, and that's often the case on meditation retreat. But it can also be addressed to others or in the presence of others, in which case it's usually called speech. So usually we would use spoken words for this speech, but sometimes there can be gestures or pictures used for this, right? Nice gestures and not so nice gestures. We've seen both of them. Come on in, you know? And then other methods of communication. So let's talk about this whole idea of how thought patterns can arise in practice and common responses to them and an analysis of this. So a first way that thought often comes up for us in practice is the experience of being completely overrun by thought and not being able to find the meditation object. And this is really, really common, especially at the beginning of practice. And not completely unknown even for people who are well established in practice. So this would be a circumstance where, for instance, we understand we're supposed to be attending to the breath or some other object, but we keep getting lost in and carried away by thought. So you could say that the refrain, the internal refrain with this one might be something like, I can't meditate. And the basic characteristic of this state, of course, is that mindfulness is not established. So there's not mindfulness in relationship to the chosen object, but there's not mindfulness in relationship to the thought either. There's just not mindfulness. There's more the default setting running and running and running, uh, maybe along with a lot of other hindrances, and the mind just is having a very hard time catching hold at all. So that's one common scenario. So another uh, pattern that is pretty common is the experience of being aware that there is thinking going on, but feeling that it's wrong that it's there and attempting to chop it off. I'm with the breath, I'm with the breath, or I'm trying to be with the breath, but then there's this thinking coming up and it keeps bothering me. So a thought arises and we try to hold on to the breath and close out the thought and then struggle ensues in relationship. So you could say that our internal refrain there might be along the lines of be gone, gone, you intruder. And a characteristic of this then is there's a rejection of the arising of this particular experience at the mind door, right? Or another way to put it, at the sixth sense sphere, because thought arises within the mind as part of the experiences that can be known there. So there's this uh, not wanting to deal with it, but but consciousness awareness is kind of split because even though there's some attending to the breath going on, 
the mind is, hasn't landed on the breath with enough concentration, with enough steadiness to actually be able to attend to that fully. Instead, there's this other thing that's kind of breaking in all the time, breaking in all the time. So another way that we can experience this is having particular cycles of thought arise which we find pleasant and which we seek as an escape. So you're there, you're being present, you're attending. A particular thought arises in the mind and then we decide we're going to spend a sitting period thinking about our Uh, next vacation in order to pass the time. It can make the time go faster, right? Especially when things might not feel particularly satisfying. So you would say the refrain here would be something like, I may be physically here, but mentally I'm in a place which I prefer and which I find more interesting. And no one even knows. (laughs) This is our secret inner world, right? So in, in this particular case, you could say the characteristic of this is that sense de- desire has overcome mindfulness and there is a, a lack of practicing uh, in relationship to this hindrance and uh, renunciation is not present. So this is a way of saying that there's a greed cultivation going on um, when it's like that. So another version of thought arising in practice is uh, the experience of having particular cycles of thought arise which we find unpleasant and which we seek to end because of their unpleasantness. So a common refrain here would be, this shouldn't be happening, I should be able to vanquish this. So this again is often accompanied by some uh, particular hindrances, in particular aversion. So you could say the characteristic here is that aversion has overcome mindfulness and that patience and investigation are weak. Then we have the occasion of the experience of repetitive cycles of powerful and familiar thoughts which are tied up in negative self-view or view of others. So this would be along the lines of thoughts that have a compulsivity or an obsessional quality to them. So you could say The refrain is, you know, if I think this often enough, something will change, or I can't stop thinking this, it's too powerful. So probably many of us have had a day or a week or a whole retreat where the mind has been kind of like this. You you might call it the breaking up with your ex retreat, right? Where there's just like these cycles of these particular kinds of dukkha-laden thoughts and it's they're so strong and they're so powerful it's really hard to let go of them and it's hard to attend to anything else. So this is where the mind is captured by a strong conditioned pattern of suffering 
which it's unable to observe with mindfulness. And in particular kinds of patterns like this, which are long-term in nature, there's actually a neural thing that's going on. And it's important to and useful to recognize this sometimes. You know, sometimes we have particular patterns of thought that we developed early in life that have been thought in the same way many times. And so the mind just kind of easily goes there. It's a cycle uh, that is easily triggered because it's been frequently experienced. It's almost like there's a brain rut, right? And so what's really important with this particular kind of thing is to understand that the process of unbinding in relationship to this is is going to require a lot of uh, patience and internal learning uh, to open up other pathways that the mind can more easily uh, go to, things that are more skillful and more beneficial for us. So then there's the experience of many thoughts arising about the Dharma, about various uh, aspects of the teaching, about how to interpret what's happening or where you are on the map, about how this way of practice stacks up against other instruction, about what this school of Buddhism teaches compared to this other school of Buddhism. Um, So you could say the internal refrain with this tends to be, if I keep doing this, I'll figure it out and liberate my mind. And very often there's some pleasantness with this for those of us who are more mental types. We kind of enjoy this kind of um, um, speculation. Or sometimes the underpinning of this could be more in the direction of doubt of just kind of like not being sure what's going on and the mind not being able to land. So a characteristic about this is that the mind does have interest, but it's pursuing it through its usual methods of thinking about it. So part of the weakness of this is that it's not experiential. It's not really present, tense, receptive, And so it generally doesn't open into any kind of embodied understanding. While it might be interesting, and uh, of course having an intellectual framework is very useful, there can be a way that we think about practice or think about doing practice instead of actually doing practice with all four foundations of mindfulness. Then, of course, there are thought cycles that express wholesome or unwholesome states. So, wholesome examples would be thoughts of faith, thoughts of renunciation, thoughts of goodwill, thoughts of generosity. And some of the more dukkha-laden ones, the unwholesome ones, Sense, desire, aversion, sloth and torpor, restlessness and worry and doubt. So there's two different refrains here depending on whether you've got a wholesome role going or you've got an unwholesome role going. 
So the wholesome role, the thoughts are tend to be along the line, this is wonderful, let me continue, <laughs> right? So they're onward leading and empowering. And then the unwholesome ones tend to be more along the, this is horrible, get me out of here, this is impossible to do, I can't do it, it doesn't work, maybe it's not for me, and all the rest of those. So the unwholesome ones, if, if they're not seen with mindfulness, can really undermine practice um, by derailing effort. So those are some examples of thought, larger scale thought cycles that can be present in practice. And maybe now I'll turn to some particular questions um, about thought and practice. So the first one, and I've already touched on this earlier, which is, is thought always the enemy? So, because the default setting is so strong and because thought is so dominant, it can feel like that sometimes. I've certainly had people say things like, I can't meditate, I think, because I think. (laughs) I can't meditate because I think. But when you start thinking about it, what is thought? It's an impermanent phenomenon like everything else. Right? It's like a body sensation or like a sound in that it arises and manifests and is known and then at a certain point it passes away. So we actually can learn to relate to it as an object of practice when mindfulness is present. And in fact, the cultivation of skillful thoughts is a major part of Buddhist practice. Renunciation, non-harming, generosity, metta, (coughs) gratitude, and so on. And the basic idea is wholesome thoughts are to be cultivated, unwholesome ones to be abandoned. (coughs) And part of the abandonment of unwholesome thoughts is learning how to recognize them and practice with them. Bring mindfulness to them. So, practicing with thought is very much tied into the wise intention. And it's also reflected in, of course, wise speech. And it's reflected in the precepts relating to speech. So it's important, it's very significant. So the main challenge is actually learning to recognize when thought is present, i.e. establishing mindfulness in relationship to it and learning how to skillfully intersect with it. The emphasis being on the skillfulness of it. So if we're going to say what's the value in working with thought and practice, then you could say 
touch back into the fact that it's such a predominant experience. And for periods in practice, it can be very predominant as well. Not just off the cushion, but actually when we're on retreat. And there are certain cycles in practice, and not necessarily cycles where the practice is going badly. There are certain cycles of practice, for instance, in the progress of insight, where there can be a lot of thinking suddenly arise in the mind of a particular type. So it's not like it always is present just when we're learning or when we're trying to establish mindfulness. It can arise at later points in practice as well, sometimes quite unexpectedly and on occasion shockingly as some of our uh, deeper karmic conditioning bubbles up to the surface to be met. Because thinking is such a uh, predominant experience, if we can establish mindfulness in relationship to thought, we're basically opening up a huge new field of mindfulness practice which we can engage with in daily life practice. Because in daily life practice, we're generally not going to be walking around saying the metaphrases. I mean, good if you can. Good if you can remain embodied in your physicality or feel your feet. Very useful, very skillful to cultivate awareness in those kinds of ways. But if we're going to be in the thinking mode, if we're going to be back in that world and doing a lot of that, we need to be able to practice it. Practice there, right there. One of the great benefits of learning how to practice with thought is that thought in many ways is the seat of identification. That's really where the sense of self can be most easily seen in all of its various versions. What we think about, what we Uh, what views we have of ourselves, what images we have of ourselves, how we interpret uh, experience which is arising. Very interesting, the solidity of self and when it comes together in a very dense, assembled, suffering kind of way and its relationship with thought. Because it seems that our most difficult, our most suffering psychological and emotional states occur when there's this very contracted, this very identified version of self right in the middle of particular flights or cycles of thinking. So if we can begin this process of undercutting identification with thoughts, we start to really loosen up these knots of suffering that refer back to this fixed self-view. And of course, if we don't recognize what we're thinking, it's really easy to be carried away into actions of body, speech, and mind that create 
more suffering for ourselves and for others because we're just running on whatever our existing conditioning is. Maybe it's wholesome, and if so, that's okay. But a lot of it isn't. A lot of it isn't. And if there's no awareness, we can really be in the ditch a lot of the time. If we can become aware of our thinking, we have greater possibility to be able to actually connect with the other sense doors as well. Why is that? Because we've established mindfulness in relationship to our predominant experience. The predominant experience being this activity of the mind which goes, <coughs> goes on so frequently in the course of the day. It would be nice to think we could just set that aside and be with the feeling of our feet walking, right? But if we can't establish some mindfulness in relationship to what's going on at the mind door, I would say our chances of being able to feel our feet walking are probably not high. So if we were going to look at more particularly <clears throat> at how to work with thought and practice, there's basically three different common approaches in insight practice. So how you work with thought depends on the type of practice that you're doing and how well mindfulness is established when thought arises, right? Because if there's no mindfulness there, you're not going to be able to practice with thought, right? Let's just start with that basic assumption. No mindfulness, thought arises, no practice with thought, no mindfulness, But assuming that there's some mindfulness that's present there within the body-mind system. So let's take, for instance, an open awareness kind of approach along the lines of Utejaniya-style practice. So in this, my understanding is thoughts are included with everything else. There's no real priority object except being aware of whether there's mindfulness or not. It seems to be where the mind is mostly turned. right? But there's not a picking and choosing. There's, you don't go to this thing instead of this thing. It's whatever is present. So one of the advantages of that style of practice is that because it's inclusive there isn't any kind of strain there to avoid thought right you're not starting with here pay attention here and it's more like practicing with daily life mind except you're turning the mind around to really observe its workings as it's going about experiencing various things So the possibility for a crossover effect when you go home is probably pretty good if you can learn how to do it in that kind of way because it's the closest to what it's like when we're not on retreat. One of the, some of the downsides that are possible there in relationship to mindfulness of thought is that we may be more off likely to get lost and to wander around in there. It can be more difficult and slower to develop concentration for some people. 
right? Because you're not attending to anything in particular. So it can be a little harder to notice whether there's actually mindfulness present or not, or whether there's just like some vague knowing of something. Um, there could, can be, it could be slower to develop awareness in relationship to other sense doors because you're coming in with the default setting of the mind kind of like doing its thing and kind of, right? So it's not a practice style where you're intentionally turning to the other, other sense doors, the other five. And of course, you know, you're going to have to watch it to see if the awareness is actually mindful or whether it's just regular style thinking with maybe a little bit more awareness in relationship to it. But basically the style in that practice is you just include it in the same way you include everything else. You just know what you, if it's thinking, you know that it's thinking, you notice the attitude of mind towards the thinking. Maybe you'll notice more than that. Maybe you'll notice what kind of thinking it is. But that's how you would work with it. You would treat it as as an object, right? Looking at whether it's being held with mindfulness. So then another style of practice is use of a primary object and which is a way of practice where there, there is something picked out. The mind starts out by being aimed towards something in particular, like the breath to start. And in this kind of style of practice, and I would say Mahasi style practice would be more along the lines of this. Thinking usually isn't investigated until fairly late in the process of opening. So, right? You start with mindfulness of the body, you go to mindfulness of the body, you feel the sensations of the breath. Maybe you then, you know, notice the other sense doors in the walking practice. You're, you know, attending to the sensations of the feet. Then maybe you open up hearing and maybe you open up tasting and smelling and all the rest of it. But you're, you generally start by going in through the body first, right? The first foundation of mindfulness. So in this style of practice you're turning away from the default setting in habitual conditioning, right? You're saying, okay, that whole like jumble of stuff up there, I'm not going to go there. I'm going to go to the extent possible. I'm going to feel the breath here, here, right? I'm going to feel the breath. With that style of practice, you may develop concentration sooner. May, that's a may. It may actually summon more renunciation, Right, because you're asking the mind not to just wander about in various noticings, but you're asking it to attend to something in particular. And in order to do that, you have to be able, or at least willing, to do that. Right, to come in and sit down for 45 minutes or something, and and be primarily with the breath. And then other things arise, and you know them. But at least in the earlier ways of practicing in this way, you know those other things, but then you return to your primary object or to your anchor object. Now some of the downsides, so these other sense doors may be available sooner in that that style of practice, because you're not 
turning directly towards the mind in the same kind of way that you do in other practice styles. But if there's some downsides there too, which is there may actually be aversion towards thought. You know, like thought comes up and you're like, dope slap it, I don't want that. Back to the breath. You know, and actually develop a pattern of rejection of thought or seeing thought as an enemy. You may be setting up a view of meditation that meditation is concentration and no thought. That if you're thinking it can't be meditation or it's not meditation. There may be more strain and pain actually there, but not necessarily gain. Because the mind can get really tight when it's practicing in that kind of way, right? Because sometimes those thoughts that are arising are actually representations of pretty significant, vivid, and powerful psycho-emotional physical states. (laughs) And by not dealing with the thoughts, not opening to the thoughts, we're basically contesting with emotions and body sensations that might be there and might be quite powerful. So the hindrances can actually... When they, when they do break through in that style of practice, can really be pretty powerful. Another downside of this style of practice is, it's, I have definitely seen people who have never learned how to practice with thought. They've developed a certain facility uh, of concentration, and they've never really practiced that much at the mind door and in the, the most extreme examples of this, there's actually been what you could consider spiritual bypassing where you use uh, the mind and the power of concentration to actually avoid feeling or knowing whole fields of experience. There's actually a suppression thing that, that's going on. So instead of the mind becoming more and more open, more and more translucent, more and more transparent to its own workings, more able to accommodate the full range of human experience, it actually develops a kind of uh, place that it can go to not have those feelings or not have those experiences, but it never really ventilates it with mindfulness. It never really knows or, or, or brings the full palette of our human experience into conscious, mindful, wise awareness. So, you know, a third style of practicing uh, with this is basically a style where thought is investigated as an arising experience. So the mind takes an investigative approach when it realizes that thinking is there as the predominant experience. So it treats, recognizes correctly that this is an experience at the mind door This is an arising that's part of the exploration and the investigation of the third foundation of mindfulness. Like other conditioned arisings, it it shares the three characteristics. It too is impermanent. It too is not capable of providing 
lasting satisfaction, it too is not self. Not self. So then you start to notice, well, if you're going to investigate thoughts, how would you actually do that? How would you take the mindfulness that's present and the recognition that the thought is there and actually use that mindfulness to look into the specific manifestations that are present there as part of that thought. Well, some of the things that you could look at, you could look at the Vedana of the thought. Is it pleasant? Is it unpleasant? Is it neutral? There may be particular emotional states that are present with these thoughts, especially repetitive kinds of thoughts. You may have noticed this at a certain point when you, you have cycles of repetitive thoughts of a particular kind. They are often bound up in particular emotions. So if you relate to them solely as thoughts, like it's a thought, without getting more specific about, well, what kind of thought is it? And is there a, an emotion there? And are there body sensations there? It, it will often continue to come around and around and around because you actually haven't opened to it mindfully. You've kind of given it a little bit of, you, you know, you've, you've applied the mindfulness paintbrush to it a little bit, but it knows that you never really <laughs> have opened to it. You've never really practiced with it. You've just kind of given it a, uh, a quick once-over on the way to trying to shove it out the door. So there may be emotional states there, uh, which is the third foundation of mindfulness. And if they're strong emotional states, almost always there will be strong body sensations that are there as part of it too. So there is a lot of observations that are possible for you to notice when you start to closely attend about how the mind conditions the body and vice versa. You're starting to see the condition nature of experience. So, you know, some really common examples of this, you know, make one up. You know, you're sitting in the hall and there's a particular bird song that you hear and there arises in, in your mind a particular memory about being on vacation and then there's some thinking about the person you were on vacation with and then there's the arising of a particular emotion and related uh, that follows on with that memory and then there's the arising of particular body sensations that are part of that emotion right you're moving towards development of the mind's capacity to experience uh, the arising and passing away of things as a flow of events within the mind stream that arise and pass away and that uh, condition each other. Right? You start to see the impersonality of it in the sense that you're not choosing to have these associations and find yourself, you know, having this body state of, say, grief or something. But there's been a link between 
the hearing and the recognition of a particular sound and you know, now you're crying, <laughs> right? But there's been a lot in between there. A lot has happened in between. When you start to be able to attend in that kind of close way that includes thought, you start to understand how these conditioned things happen and that you don't control them. So some of the other ways that we can work with thought is, you know, you can characterize it as wholesome or unwholesome. You can sort it into types of thinking. Uh, You know, is it planning? Is it remembering? Is it worrying? Is it, what is it? Is it trying to figure things out? Is it analyzing? Is it longing? Is it regretting? What is it? So by asking uh, our body-mind system to be able to respond to these kinds of questions that have investigation at their heart, we're really strengthening the presence of mindfulness in relationship to these particular cycles of thought, right? Because in order to be able to pose these kinds of questions while you're in the experience, there has to be mindfulness, right? If you're completely lost and completely absorbed in the thoughts, you wouldn't be able to have the, you wouldn't have the capacity of mind to look at it that way, right? You'd just be in it, completely vortexed down into it. You can look at, uh, is a thought related to the past? Is it related to the present? Is it related to the future? You can do thought counting. So all of these are methods or ways that mindfulness and non-identification can be strengthened in relationship to thought. You're moving into the direction of being able to see these as arising events. So just a couple more points. Another question that we could pose in relationship to thought and working with thought is, under what circumstances would you want to turn away from thought completely? And, you know, there are a few particular circumstances under which this can be skillful. And I'll just give a few. And, of course, these always depend on the totality of the circumstances, right? So it's not... This is not a something that can be oversimplified. And now I'm going <laughs> to oversimplify it. But you could turn completely away from thought, for instance, when you're attempting to develop concentration of a strong type using a single object. Right? So like you're practicing for jhana. That would be an example where you would just like not engage with thought, you would not investigate thought. At a certain point, if you're having a lot of problems, you might get lured into having to investigate thought a little bit just to get over it, but you know, the basic instruction would be, it's don't, keep, just keep doing this, you know, whatever it is you're attending to. Sometimes it can be skillful to let go of cycles of thought where you've really experienced them 
fully, willingly, and repeatedly with strong mindfulness and they just keep like bubbling up. They're just kind of cul-de-sacs in the mind where the mind goes and goes around and around and around and around and around and around. You know it, you've experienced it, you've been present with it, you understand it. It doesn't even have any particular charge anymore. It just kind of is a place where the mind goes to go around and around and around. That would be an example of something where you could just say, okay, that's enough. (laughs) Enough with that one. Seen that one enough. Another circumstance in which it can be really skillful to turn away from thought is when there's a strong and painful emotion bound up in the thoughts and the mindfulness battery is low. Right? Mindfulness battery is low, mindfulness is weak, you're feeling kind of tired, you're feeling kind of depleted, and there's this you know, very painful, very difficult cycle of thoughts. That is not the time <laughs> that you want to attempt to practice mindfulness in relationship to those thoughts. So to use an image that's more like a circumstance where you're out in the ocean in your, your little sunfish sailboat and you see a tsunami coming, and this is not where you're going to be practicing your sailing skills, right? This is the time to head for the beach, right? Head for the beach, head for high ground. Just you need to really do something very different than engage with it. And this is also true when there's an obsessional kind of nature to the thinking uh, and or there's trauma bound up in it. So to speak about the obsessional piece of it first. So, you know, the thing about obsession is it it doesn't really yield to investigation. So if, when you turn the mind towards it, it's uh, very easy for the mind just to kind of get vortexed into it. You know what I mean by vortex? Like the whirling tornado and you know you you get too close to the edges and you just like get sucked in it and whirled around in it and whirled around in it and whirled around in it Uh, good to avoid so don't attempt to investigate obsession and then um, trauma is a a little bit uh, different piece you know traumatic arisings within the body mind often involve Uh, thought can involve memory as well. So, you know, an interesting piece of working with the arising of trauma in meditation is there are ways to do it, but it has to be done skillfully and very gradually. So if you're having something like that come up in your practice, it's really important to be straightforward with your teacher that you're having that. And your teacher can help you work with it in a way that is actually going to be beneficial and not result in you being, you know, re-absorbed uh, into that experience. So, you know, part of the, the training for a number of Western teachers now as part of their teacher training is to learn more about working with trauma and meditation when it presents itself, and it's really very useful information. 
Because, you know, often we have the idea, well, you know, this is painful, this is difficult, I'm going to go on meditation retreat. There's a healthy desire for wholeness and for wellness and to the end of suffering. But then there's this deluded piece that can be there too if you if you haven't been educated. that And the way I'm going to get rid of this, the way I'm going to, you know, conquer it, the way I'm going to resolve it is I'm going to go right into it. I'm going to, you know, take my little sunfish out on the ocean and I'm going to head out towards the tsunami and I'm going to show the tsunami, you know. I'm going to just, you know, really do it this time. Not skillful. The impulse for health, the impulse for wholeness, very skillful. The method eh, needs a lot of tuning, right? So there there are ways that you, you can work uh with this very gradually and in a way that is much more controlled so that you're not pulled into the cycle of suffering um, and the the repetition in real time of the experience. So there's a learning there. So I think that's that's probably about enough. There's probably enough for a whole second talk on this. Um, But this is a very rich area of practice, very rich, right? Because a lot of our suffering is, is psychological and a lot of psychological suffering is very much bound up in and rooted in thoughts of a particular kind. So it's a huge area of practice and uh, an area where there is a lot of skill development possible with a lot of benefit as a consequence. So we'll leave it there for tonight. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.